Welcome to the School of the Word. This is Lesson 37 in our teaching series, As in the Days of Noah, titled The Universal Church. Our teacher is Alan Smith. Amen. I'm going to start off today finishing last week's concept of teaching and beginning a, a I was just the same, don't worry, it's the same series, <laughs> but I'm leaving uh, one train of thought and jumping into another train of thought. We'll do it kind of, uh, so it'll be a little bit of a mix. So I'm going to start off making you feel good, and then I'm going to take you down. Okay, so instead of taking you down and making you feel good, well, um, I hope it's a joke. <laughs> so... <laughs> That was we began today uh, in our teaching. I uh, my goal is to bring truth, but it's also to bring enough truth to aggravate you a little bit to study and to think. It's not here to appease. That's not my purpose. I like to aggravate just enough to make us a little uncomfortable enough that we'll think we'll look into stuff for ourselves. I'm doing more than that than I'm making complete statements. And uh, my hope is that and, and when I teach you and show you some little aggravating things for us to consider, I, I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will lead us in all truth. I'm, I'm trusting that. So I'm not really a dogmatic teacher teaching what I think as much as I am uh, trying to lead us in a, a way of discovering because... In prophetic teaching, it's a little different. It's prophetic teaching, you're trying to catch the spirit of what's behind it. And um, that, believe it or not, can be a little different for different individuals. It's according to what the Holy Ghost is trying to teach you an application in your own life. So therefore, I'm not as dogmatic as expository type teachers would be with line upon line and that sort of stuff. So a prophetic teachings just a little different. And you know our scripture, as the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. We start seeing that the New Testament is actually written around that theme of the second coming of Christ. Now last week, just to finish that one up, I got into uh, just do it concept of understanding of the scriptures. Uh, in Christianity, if we're not careful, We'll spiritualize everything and we'll not do a lot because we tend to think we've, we've thought it and we've done it. It's in the spirit. You can't see it. Uh, but what we see with Jonah, there does make a difference in just the doing it, of it. And I was showing us that last week. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. <clears throat> so that was where God was telling him just to he was telling Jonah just to go, I'm giving you a message, now just go do it. We discovered that when Jonah was trying to qualify the word from the Lord, he got into a lot of trouble. He was using his own reasoning, his own mind. Well, God, if you if I do this, you'll do that, and you know, yada, yada, yada. The, the, the good thing about a word or the will of God is you just do it. And you it doesn't, if it's it's you got to decide if your faith is bigger than your understanding. Which is the greater, uh, your faith or your understanding? Nothing wrong with understanding. I'm all for it. But I promise you, you will not gain enough understanding to give you faith. This is not the way that it works, even though we try to do that. Now, 
To just do it has nothing to do with winning, but everything to do with trying. There again, it's it's the to, to do it is you're not doing it. Jonah was to do it, not with an expected outcome. God had an expected outcome. Jonah had an expected outcome, but Jonah's expected outcome had nothing to do with doing it. So part of human reasoning is we try to go through this gyration of, of trying to convince ourselves why God just had a good idea, you see. But God's good ideas are not human reasoning. They're God reasoning. Now, revelation comes during the moment of trying. When God speaks, we do it, and the revelation of why we did it will come during and at the end of our doing it. So the understanding that you need to convince yourself to do it will not be obtained until you start doing it. I don't I enjoy the Indiana Jones series of movies, and I don't remember which one it was. This has been used by others. But when he stepped out of this, there's a big gulf there, and he stepped out, and he had to go to this cave on the other side of the big gorge. And then the way he understood it, he had to step out. But there was actually a bridge there, but you couldn't see it. He put his foot out, and he couldn't see it. It wasn't until he discovered he had to put all of his weight. He had to go for broke. He had to have faith that it was there. And when he had faith that it was there, guess what? It appeared. That's what, that's what faith is, and that's what the concept is. You just do it. And so as Indiana Jones just did it, and he pulled his foot. You couldn't put partial weight. It wouldn't show up. It wasn't until he was committed to live or die that the bridge appeared. And so it is prophetically with following the will of God. Even though we're trying to get all of the human understanding we can, a lot of the times God might give us a little for the most part, faith does not work that way. There's nothing wrong with doing good things with your human understanding. But I'm speaking to a prophetic people that hear the will of God and they're going to do the will of God. Why do you do uh, the will of God? You just you just do it. Uh, I see Chuck here and he uh, the, will, the Lord told him to go to Raleigh and pray around some buildings. Well, in any type of human reasoning... Uh, he was having a hard time walking at the time. He could come up with a reason why he shouldn't do it. And what in the world to walk around a bunch of buildings praying, I can't give you a human understanding why that would be worth anything. But between me and you, if, God, if that was the will of God, which I had a tremendous witness with it, he had to just do it. And you get to that point of commitment. You know, it's like you got to do it or die. You know what I'm saying? So that's that's what we're talking about with the, the prophetic concept of just do it. When God speaks, it requires faith to just do it. God celebrates those who just do it over those who think they win at it. You have professional people that think they're good at it. Well, anyway, you get it. <laughs> you get it. First Chronicles, and David said to his son Solomon, be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord uh, my God will be with you. He'll not leave you nor forsake you until you've finished all the work and service of the house of the Lord. Now, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting point. Was God going to be with him if he didn't do it? Well, I, I would say so, but God wasn't going to be with him in what he was to do because he wasn't doing it, so therefore there's no reason for God to be. In other words, he, he would never know if he could do it. 
if he didn't, if he didn't step out. Uh, King David knew a spiritual truth. Here it is. When you just do it, what God says, that is, he will be with you. David was advising his son on how to accomplish his God-given task. So that there lies the key understanding to a prophetic people who were uh, proclaiming the will of God. Uh, we always want somebody else to do it. Now, I'm going to skip over this quickly so I can get into my other teaching. Moses wanted somebody else to do it. He said this in Exodus 13, but Moses said, Oh, Lord, please send uh, someone else to do it. That's our great thoughts. The Levites shall do it, he said in Numbers 151. And that was in t moving the tabernacles. He said that the Levites will do it because they already said that they would. Caleb said, certainly do it. Now, this one's interesting, Numbers 13, 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses said, we shall go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Now, when he says we can certainly do it, I want it to, to do it to have a greater understanding, prophetic understanding to you now. It's in the, the reason they could do it. They said, well, there's these big, all this stuff, you know, big grasshoppers and everything else. All of this reasoning on why you can't do it, it's in the doing it that God will go with you. And you'll never know if he would be with you unless you do it. And Joseph said this, I cannot do it, but God will do it. The reason the dream was given to the Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it, it says, soon. So God's into the prophetic do it understanding is my point there says, the Lord will do it in Ezekiel. The Lord has spoken and I will do it. Jesus says, believe in me because I do it. John uh, 10, but if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that uh, you may know and understand that the Father is in me. I mean, I was talking to a, uh, Trevor knows, uh, Les Schofield Jr. Have you ever, if you followed him any on Facebook, I don't know if you have. I mean, God has radically saved that boy. And he's probably in his 30s. He was doing everything that a lost person does. And he's pretty loud at it. He's a big guy. And so he, when he lives life, he lives it loud. Well, God, uh, now Les is his father. He's the one that would pray for me when I got healed of cancer. And this big, burly young man, uh, uh, Samson of a man, living life loud. God knocked the slobber out of him. Now he's all over Facebook living Jesus loud. Now there's people saying, well, you're too radical, Les. You need to settle down a little. And, and oh, he's just, he get, makes him louder. They're, they are learning to, to uh, so, but my point is, God did it there in that boy. God did it. And when God does it, you don't have to wonder if God did it or not. He, 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 he just did it. And uh, it's just amazing. Jesus said he would do it. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now that gets to be tough. We say, well, I don't know if I have faith. So, well, just do it. Paul tells us what happens when we do it. First Corinthians, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Have you ever seen that one? Why do we do it? It's because we get this crown. We get a crown if we'll just do it. Now, there again, you're not looking at the end result. You're just doing it. You don't know if it'll, you don't know the outcome. It's not about the outcome. It's about the doing of it. 
And in, in it, it uh, the Apostle Paul says here that we'll have a crown. And First Corinthians, whatever you do, do it all for who? <laughs> for the glory of God. So why do we need to do it? It's because of the glory of God. Now, Paul exhorts us to finish doing it. Watch this one. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. Isn't that good? So we're to keep continually keep doing it. Here's who name, whose name we do it in, whatever you do, whether in word or deed. Do it all in the name of the Lord, he says. Now, always remember this. When you feel like you are in the belly of a fish and all is lost, the king's got one more move when you just do it. Can you hear that? If you're in your life right now and you think all's lost, God's got one more move. And that move is in you doing what God's telling you to do. That is his move. And if you do it, he'll be there with you. Now, I'm going to move us all into a, to another phase of this teaching. You've been through the doing it. You should be all excited about doing it. Now I'm going to show you how you do it, and you can do it wrong. You can do it out of human flesh, or you can do it out of faith with the power of God. Now let's look at this. This is, you know, I've had these titles or these descriptions the time, what time period are we in? Of course, it's in the days of Noah, but it's the time of deceptions, delusions, illusions, false perceptions, progressive, progressive reinterpretation, selfish prophets, running prophets, third-day prophets, and today we'll start in the pagan church. The pagan church. The pagan church that's doing it, but it's doing it all wrong. Now, I want us to look at this as we, what are we to do when we do it? We're to do the will of God and not the will of man. Now, that's a big statement. It is a huge statement because as humans, we like to mix. We like to create a mixture in our doing it. We want to mix a little of God and a whole lot of us. And that is really hard. We can say, well, I can do it this way or I can do it. Well, that's not enough to hurt. Well, sometimes it's not and sometimes it is. Let's look at it here. Now, here I'm going to call this group uh, hypnosis in America. We're going to call this Christendom versus Christianity. Now, there's a introduce you to this term. Some of you maybe are very aware of it, maybe others not, but you have what's called Christendom. And then you've got Christianity. Uh, we need to understand the deception and the difference. Uh, now, let me show it to you like this. We're... As a church and as Christians, it's like we're sitting here trying to do the will of God. And then we got Satan out here in the world, and we're fighting Satan that's in the world. I, I get that. But here's something you've got to understand if you understand Bible, and if you want to understand the book of Revelation. You've got Christianity, and you've got Satan in the world, but you've got this something or another in the middle of it called Christodom. Now, Christodom is a banner that covers everything in the world that uh, uh, confesses Christ somewhat. And I want, to, I want to take us in a little more understanding. Now, here is Christodom. Christodom 
It's the universal worldwide body or society of Christians. Now, this is the term that comes out of the dictionary. Uh, so Christendom is when people, if you were in a secular meeting and somebody says, uh, uh, well, you're, you're, you have the world of Christendom, that is categorizing a group of people on the planet that say they all have something to do with Christ. It's putting everybody in that one banner of Christendom. Now, the Christian universal worldwide body or society of Christians, it's called the Christian world. So if you see the word Christendom, it's speaking about the Christian world. Well, here's what I want you to understand. You got Christian, you got Christendom, then you got the world. Christendom covers Christianity's under this banner of Christendom. Now, I want to say something to you. If you study Scripture, look at it from a prof prophetic view. God has a greater problem with Christendom than he does Satan. Now, Satan's working through Christendom. But when Satan works through Christendom, he's doing it under this illusion, delusion, all of these things we've been speaking about. Satan enters the Christian church under the banner of Christendom. And as he enters that, see, here's what some people, here, I know people have problem with pre-tribulation rapture. I understand that. Some people do and some don't. Because of places it looks like it, uh, Christendom is in the book of Revelation, which it is. But consider this. Christendom does go through tribulation. The great whore of Babylon. Don't think that that's Satan over here by himself. That's Christendom. It's the form of Christianity. Satan hijacks Christianity under this banner of Christendom and comes against God. That's the reason, church, we have to understand to make a distinction in truth is important lest you be in the Christendom camp and not the Christian camp. The slyness, the slickness. And I understand there again, well, I, that's the reason I've told everybody I'm pre-tribulation rapture, give or take seven or eight years. And... <laughs> I say that so everybody will like me. I do tend towards pre-trib more, though. I'll be honest with you. And, uh, and, but here's part of the reason why. Is Christendom in tribulation? You better believe it. You better believe it. But, just, but it's, it's the workings of Satan towards God. So under Christendom, we need to understand part of our crowd's against God. Somebody needs to wake up, smell the roses. All right, how do you come into the Christendom camp? It's when you compromise truth. I'm sorry. You say, oh, we can give and take here a little bit. Well, go ahead, Christendom. Jump right on in there with all you got and all you want. That's what happens. Is everybody with me? Yeah. If you are, I'm going to move on. All right, let's watch this happen here. Now, a Christian is a person who believe, is a believer in Jesus Christ and follows his teaching. And you know, death, better resurrection. I didn't put all that up there. But that's a, so you got a true Christian. You know, even in Israel, 
our example is, our proof text, in Israel, Jesus always talked about a remnant. Those were the true believers in the nation Israel. In the day of grace, you got the Christians in this world of Christendom. That's the true believers. You always have to test yourself to see which foot you're in on a certain subject. Are you embracing true Christianity, which is a word of God, uncompromised? Or are you compromising the word of God just so everybody's happy and you're in the Christendom camp? Now, I'm going to show you where this came in. That's a famous uh, picture or a uh, mosaic. Uh, I think it was in Pompeii, maybe, when they uncovered. Anybody know who that is? It's Alexander the Great. I want, to, I want to show us a little something, the links between Alexander the Great and Christendom. You say, well, what in the world has Alexander the Great got to do with Christendom? He, he came approximately 300 years before Christ. But Alexander the Great, even though he died at 33, right? See, how old was Jesus when he died? Oh, what a coincidence. Now, you, you, the reason I say that, there was a lot of comparisons made to Alexander the Great and Jesus Christ. Alexander the Great was viewed as a deity. I mean, evidently, this young man was just absolutely incredible as he went around conquering everybody. And, and uh, So let's go through this quickly. So I just got a few moments. Alexander the Great died three centuries before Christianity officially appeared. Alexander the Great died at 33. He was regarded as a deity and one of the most important gods, I should have put a little G there, in the Middle East, Europe, and parts of, of Asia. In other words, people at his, uh, uh, where he was buried, uh, people would come by there because they, and they would want to touch where he was buried and all this sort of stuff. Uh, I think he was buried in Alexandria, I think. But people would come by, they want to touch his grave and all this sort of stuff, and they made coins with his head on it. Uh, women that wanted to get pregnant back in that day, they said they'd want a coin because if they could just have a coin with his head on it that, it, that they could get pregnant or whatever. And so they had all kinds. Of, the point being, Alexander the Great was uh, looked upon by some as a god and by others this side of a god. Uh, because of his influence and his great accomplishments and all of that. So, now with that in mind, and that, and that continued on, even though he was 300 years before the church, you got to understand the church at Rome considered a lot of things that Alexander the Great did as good ways, as a very successful MO, if you will, on how to, to be successful. Now, Hebrew, Hebrew and early Christian imprints of Alexander. In 70 AD, the historian Josephus, which we all know about, wrote that after the conquering of Tyre, uh, the siege of Gaza, Alexander visited uh, Jerusalem. Uh, at the entrance of the city, he met the Hebrew archpriest uh, Simon the Just and many other priests and people. Alexander always respected the rules, characteristics for the places he visited, so he descended uh, off of his horse and went to greet the Jewish uh, archpriest. So what happened is when he... I think it was called the Macedonian siege or whatever. When he was one of his conquests, he comes up on Jerusalem. He goes there, of course, conquers it. Didn't take much to do that. But what he, when he first went there, he got off his horse and he addressed the priest 
the Jewish uh, priest there. And um, I think he made a, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think I have it here. He, uh, let's see what I got here. And when he had said to his uh, paramenian and had given the high priest his right hand, the priest ran along uh, by him and he came into the city. And when he went up into the temple, he offered a sacrifice to God. There it is, according to the high priest's direction. Magnificently treated both the high priest and the priest. And when the book of Daniel was showed him, now here's what you got to understand. The priest showed him the book of Daniel, uh, where in Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians. He supposed that himself was the person intended. Isn't that interesting? So, but you got to understand Alexander the Great, what he would do when he would conquer a city or a country or whatever. He allowed everybody to keep their religion, you see. And, and, and that's the way he kept your loyalty. He took everything you had, so to speak. He overthrew you, but then he left everything as normal as he could. Uh, and especially, the, he, knew the, he knew the MO there, especially the religion. And, but when he got here to Jerusalem, he thought, hey, well, maybe I'm this guy in Daniel or whatever. But nonetheless, he, the point being, he embraced it. Now, here's, here's what the response was. Alexander's name was added to the genealogy of the Jewish community, giving him a divine quality. Moreover, the Greek word for synagogue dates back to the times when Alexander gave freedom for various Jewish gatherings. You know, something. So you see, he, 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 he took them over, but yet he said, okay, I'm going to let you keep doing your Jewish stuff, keep doing your, and that's fine. And the, but there again, you got to understand, it's huge when he considered himself as the one in the book of Daniel. Now, he, I'm not so sure that he really believed he was that person, but what he knew was if they thought he was maybe that person, he was going to take advantage of it. So they would see him as, part of their religion, okay? It was a concept, and it's a concept that he used throughout his uh, conquering. Uh, he used that same concept, and it worked like a dream, worked like a dream. So even when he was doing some of his conquests, the word got out, hey, when he comes through here, he's probably, he's not going to change us that much. He's probably going to be a great guy to be over us. So he had all of this uh, he, in part of his genius, <laughs> was if he could find himself in the book of Daniel, wow, that worked out well, you know, and, and who knows. So in 332 BCE, uh, which is actually BC, this, uh, I made this copy out of a, what, uh, out of a academic book. And in academia, they're going to use, instead of BC or AD, they're going to use BCE and CE, but still that's uh, before Christ. Jerusalem falls to Alexander the Great during his six-year Macedonian conquest of the empire of Darius III of Persia. Alexander's armies took Jerusalem without complication while traveling to Egypt after the siege of uh, Tyre. You can see there in 332. Now, Alexander the Great would let his conquered empires maintain their forms of religion as a way of keeping their loyalty. Now, what I want you to take note of is that's a, that was part of his genius on controlling a large group of people. These countries he would over, it was, it was absolute, just a, a thing of genius. He would call it a universal religion. In other words, all these different countries were under his rule 
And he allowed all the different religions to maintain their, uh, the countries to maintain their religions. So he had this concept of a universal religion where all the religions, anybody see Christendom coming on the scene, where all the religions were acceptable because it was under a banner of Alexander the Great. Now, <clears throat> universal religion is usually taken to refer to the concept of a single world religion. There again, we know as prophetic people that the Tower of Babel is trying to emerge again. And it's done through Alexander the Great. He's using it as a tactic of war to win the people and control the people. And not only that, to get their loyalty. This great warrior allows them to keep their religion. He puts it all under one banner, calls it a universal or a world religion. Now, and this is, I'll just kind of throw this in. I think it's interesting. At the tomb of Alexander, in Alexandria in the first century A.D., St. Mark, a man who was one of the creators of Christianity, of course, we all know Mark, died. He was buried in the eastern part of the city, close to the ruined uh, Soma, in 828 A.D., during the uh, domination of Islam. Two merchants, Bruno of whatever that is, Malico, and uh, Rustico of Torcella stole the body believed to be St. Mark and took it to Venice. <laughs> and what happened is you had Muslim uh, came in, invaded. So out of Alexandria, they are going to steal because they didn't know. They were afraid maybe they were going to destroy it or something. So they stole it. Now, this is an 828, mind you. We're talking of hundreds of years later. So they stole the body and uh, took it to Venice. There, there was a big uh, basilica of... St. Mark, I think, in Venice that they have put in his remains or in that. But, but there's a little bit of a problem here. Christians there built a magnificent, a magnificent church currently known as the Basilica of St. Mark. However, it is unknown if they actually took the remains of St. Mark or Alexander the Great. They were both buried pretty close together. <laughs> so, they, so they're not really sure which, which one they grabbed. And so this became a big debate. In St. Mark's, is it St. Mark or is it Alexander the Great? And uh, so there are two main arguments which suggest Bruno Riscio could have taken the bones of Alexander uh, to Venice. Now, the reason I think that that's, uh, I don't know if I, okay, here we find the idea that all religions lead to God. Now, to back up a moment, when we had this, there through the ages there's been this debate, is that Mark or is that Alexander the Great in Venice? And so, uh but nobody in the church would touch it because they're saying, no, it's Mark. And they said, well, it's easy to find out. Just open up the other tomb, and if it's got a, all of this stuff of a king and everything, Mark doesn't have that, and Alexander does. But it's not been opened because they don't want to know because it'd mess up, mess up our church scene there. Okay. I just thought that to be a little funny. So here we find the idea that all re, uh, religions lead to God. That's where that's... I just want you to know where the idea is coming back on the scene. And here's something to think about. The universal church idea came on the scene 300 years before Christ was born. And that's amazing to me. Universal religion, that thing, came on the scene 300 years before Christ was born. It was an idea birthed by Alexander the Great to bring unity of all those he had conquered. Thus, we have the beginning of universal reconciliation ideology. 
Now, here was his idea. If you mix all of the religions together, that in the end, everybody's going to be with God. It's called universal reconciliation. Now, more people in Christendom embraces universal reconciliation than you know. It's just astronomical, and it's growing over. It's just growing leaps and bounds. Now, let me move on quickly. I could stay there a while. What is the actual meaning of Catholic? Now, before you don't get all falling out with me because I mentioned Catholic, but Catholic does have a problem. Uh, Catholic, there's how you pronounce it. The definition of Catholic is universal. That's what the word means. That's what Catholic means. And what we found out was the way they came up with that word, what they were doing, it was patterning themselves how much of Alexander the Great had came through. They were in all the way to... Anyway, so I, historically, it's a beautiful read on what happened. And so, but the word Catholic means universal. That's what Catholic means. Huh? That's why syncretism. Yes, it's totally, yes. So a person who belongs to the universal... Christian church. That's what a Catholic is. A person who belongs to the universal Christian church. Now, the Catholic church starts emerging. Now, as we see this happen, the history of the Catholic church is the formation, events, and historical development of the Catholic church through time. The tradition of the Catholic church claims the Catholic church began with Jesus Christ and his teachings. The Catholic tradition considers that the Catholic Church is a continuation of the early Christian community established by the disciples in Jesus. I submit that the universal church started 300 years before that. So it's kind of interesting because as we get into... To, now, let me say this. The Catholic Church is Christendom. There's a remnant of believers in the Catholic Church. Okay. There's remnant, there, just, there, there are believers in the Catholic Church, but you've got to make a distinction between true believers and, 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 and uh, Christendom. You've got you to have to make that distinction. Now, when you're seeing all of this on the news and everything happening, you need to understand that a lot of it is coming out through Christendom. As we see uh, homosexuals, priesting, or transvestites giving children's church or whatever, that's under the banner of Christendom, you see. Now, then there's more I'm going to say about that as we move on. The church considers its bishops to be the successors to Jesus, the apostles, and the church leader. The bishop of Rome, which is known as the Pope, to be the sole successor to St. Peter, who ministered in Rome in the first century A.D. after his appointment by Jesus as the head of the church. That's the Now, the spread of Catholicism was patterned after Alexander the Great. I've introduced you to that thought. Now let's move a little further into it. Now here's what Alexander would do. They would go into a country and find their traditions and incorporate them into the Catholic faith, thus creating and holding their loyalty. So the way Catholicism spread all the way around the world so quickly is they, the Spaniards would go in, basically take over a country like they did Central America and they did Mexico. I'll use them as an example. And... What they would do is go find the folklore or the traditions. They would bring those traditions, folklore, under the banner of Christianity or Christendom. Now, watch this one. How did uh, Catholicism start in Mexico? Well, here's where it happened. The Sp uh, Spanish colonists 
introduced Roman Catholicism to Mexico in the 16th century. Today, Catholicism is synonymous with the culture and society of Mexico. So if you go, Trevor and I went with a few others, I don't know how many years ago that's been now. But if you go into Mexico, mostly Central America too, Catholicism is the, uh, it is definitely the religion of choice, but there's such a mixture that's in the Catholicism. It's like if you go to Haiti, you've got a mixture of voodoo and and Jesus on the cross and voodoo. It's just, but the concept comes from Alexander the Great. It's okay if it's your religion, we'll just bring it up. We'll have a universal religion. You just got to understand in, 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 in this Christendom idea that you got all kinds of neighbors and everything that's got a mixture of, of paganism and everything else. So uh, this was accomplished by capturing a story of folklore or incorporating it into the Catholic faith. And practice. Now, here's the story they used in Mexico. According to tradition, Lady Guadalupe appeared to Juan Diego on December the 9th and 12th, two times, 1531. During her first apparition, she requested that a shrine to her be built on the spot where she appeared. Lady Guadalupe then appeared a second time to Juan Diego and ordered him to collect roses. Juan Diego brought the roses in a cloak, and when he opened it, dozens of roses fell out, revealing this image. So what it was, he had this farmer, had this apparition. Lady Guadalupe was there. She said, I want you to build a church right here <clears throat> to the farmer. And then... He, she told him to go away and go get roses. He went away. He came back. She appeared again. He had the roses in this uh, cloak or piece of cloth. And then when he poured the roses out at the feet of Lady Guadalupe, um, then there was a shroud made from these roses on this on this cloak. All right, that cloak right there is is what they're saying is that cloak. In other words, he threw out the roses. Now, that's still the actual cloth that he had in, in whenever it was, 15, 1600. So some people say, well, Alan, that's not real. No, I, I, let me tell you this. It could be real. The supernatural side, the dark side can do supernatural things is all I can tell you. You don't, you don't have to debate that too much. It could be or could not be. Nonetheless, the story, the folklore, because this lady appeared to this guy, said build a church there, appeared the second time, said get roses. He got the roses, put it in a cloak, and he threw them out at the second visitation. Then they looked at the, at the cloak, and that, they're saying, is the cloak. Now, Catholicism comes, Spaniards come in. They overtake it. They, so they introduce Catholicism to Mexico. They just find one of the stories. So they now say that Guadalupe, that was really Mary. Are you with me? So now you've got the lady of Guadalupe, which they say is actually Mary. In other words, you adapt to a story in the country, and then you mix it with Christianity, and then the people will go with your Christianity because they found out that that lady Guadalupe was really Mary all the time. Does that make sense? Now, you see, that still yet was out of the style of Alexander the Great. 
And that's the reason the Catholic Church knew that that style worked. They said the way they got Christ, uh, Catholicism all over the world was they used that style. They'd go in countries, find a good story or whatever, and here we'd go. Now, now we have what's called the Basilica of Guadalupe. <clears throat> Basilica de Guadalupe is a massive Catholic church that serves as the country's national shrine and houses the famous cloak containing the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Dating back to 1709, this church has become one of the most important pilgrimage sites for Catholics. I think, Trevor, we discussed these. Maybe we're going to talk about shrines a little bit, even perhaps today. Uh, now, there it is. Do you see that building on the right? Now, Trevor and I have been there. That building on the right is the old Basilica de Guadalupe. That's where they hang. In other words, they built a church there, and there it is. And they hang up, they hung up that shrine or that cloth. And then people would come to it saying that was a Mary. Now, if you look at the left-hand side of that old building, you'll see that it looks like it's sinking. See the sidewalk and the building? And the reason it looks that way is because it is. Okay. Now, you see the building to the left. I'm not really sure when it was built. I didn't look. Because the old basilica was sinking, they went beside it and built a new one. So if you go to Mexico City today, that's what it'll look like. Trevor and I went in that one on the left. They wouldn't let you in on the right. We went into that one on the left. There were people crawling on their hands and knees. It's a big deal. Do you remember that, Trevor? They were across that. There's a big courtyard out front. People would start on their hands and knees, and they'd crawl all the way down, all the way down that church to that shrine or that piece of cloth for prayers or, or something. Uh, they would show that as their humility or or something. So that's the new church there in Mexico City. There's the Pope touching the thing that the roses supposedly were spilled out of. There's the crowds coming. They come each year to, uh, I think it's December the 7th or 14th or something like that, is the Guadalupe Mass Day or something like that. So you can see how that Catholicism, but there again is the idea. The concept is you go in, you get a story, you make it a little Christian, and you slide it into the, to the, to the religious thinking. Are, are you with me? Yeah. Now listen, church, that same concept's with, with us today. You know, I, of course, I've heard it said... Uh, uh, rock music is, I had somebody come to me and say, well, Alan, rock music's the same thing. It's one of them things that's, I said, well, Jesus didn't sing Amazing Grace either. So I don't know if we can go there. You want to say, well, we've got to be careful as we're trying to see. And what I'm wanting to get into is culture versus Christianity. So I'm saying? Yeah. We've got culture and Christianity. Is it scripture or is it culture? Which one's dictating? Most music is just a reflection of the culture. I think a rock-type music, if it uh, ministers a group of people, I'm fine with it. Uh, just as I am, I'm fine with it. And, or some people don't even have the instruments. I'm fine with it, you know. You know me, myself, I need an instrument or two to cover up my singing. So it's just according <laughs> to what turns you on, I guess. So we've got to be, as I'm going on in this understanding and this prophetic revelation that I'm trying to share with you, we have to be careful with, uh, we'll keep learning at how do I know what's incorporated and, and, and what's not. There's that shrine again hanging uh, in the new cathedral. 
uh, there in Mexico City. Now here we're going to go into a mixture of culture with the church. Now you have mixture creates confusion. So now we got this uh, Guadalupe in Mexico. Uh, people all over the world go to Mexico to see that uh, that shrine or whatever. Um, two sources of supernatural power here. We got God and Satan. Two sources. We got God and we got Satan. Supernatural activity must not automatically be rejected or accepted, but must be tested to determine whether or not it is from God. Okay? And, and then, of course, you can automatically, your brain should be putting a lot of Scripture to that, uh, to that statement. We must embrace the Holy Spirit and all of His supernatural gifts but we must not accept every supernatural manifestation as from God. The reason is we got two power sources out here. So we can't go by our feelings. We got to go by the Word of God to determine these things. Now, some cultural stories are supernaturally created. Uh, this is where this thing really gets goofy. Second um, Thessalonians, you know the scripture let no man deceive you by any means. Uh, for that day shall not come, except there come a fallen away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above that, all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and now you know that withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of what? Iniquity doeth already work, only he who now lets will let until he is taken out of the way which has not happened yet. And then shall that wicked be revealed, Antichrist, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the workings of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So we cannot use as a litmus test today that we've had a miracle, so it must be God. These are the days that we're in. And those... those, uh, Litmus test, if you will, are going to get tighter and tighter as we move more towards you know, to the second coming of Christ. We're going to have to know our stuff. I'm going to have to stop here, but I'll start you with that. Does anybody know who that is? Okay, I'll give you one more picture. Does anybody know who that is? Another one, Chuck Smith. Uh, so next week we're going to pick up here. I'm going to show you a little more about culture, uh, Christianity. Uh, Frisbee lived from 49 to 93. And I start off with Calvary Chapel, Lonnie Frisbee. We'll pick up here next week. I had an encounter in the last couple of weeks of some friends of mine in California who listens to my podcast, me and Jeff Rowland, Smith and Rowland Show on Sundays. I talk about the same things on the podcast as we talked here. It was uh, covered some homosexuality and things, just like I've said here. And it has fired his rocket. He is really upset with little dairy farmer in North Carolina. So, <laughs> and so, and so, some of this, like I'm going to get into Calvary Chapel, Lonnie Frisbee. This particular guy is good friends with Chuck Smith's son, Chuck Smith Jr. And we'll pick up culture uh, and what we're looking at. Uh, I hope that today's been helpful and I've covered it quickly. Uh, but I hope that you understand some how we've got a, we got Christianity, we got Christendom, and then we got the devil. And God's got a bigger problem with 
Christendom. I hate to do it that way. Then he has a devil. Of course, it's the devil in Christendom. Now, as believers and a prophetic people, it is our job and our task. We have been designed to know the difference. And so it's very important. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for this day. I thank you, O God, for your word. And I ask and pray that you'd be with us, O God, as we look into your word about these days, these last days that we're living in. I pray, O God, as a prophetic people, we would just do it. But I pray, O God, we'd do it right. With no compromise. And that we could do it. You said you'll be with us if we do it and we do it right. No compromise. We just speak forth the truth of God that we might impact this world. Now be with us, O God, as we go into this worship time. I ask and pray, O God, we just do it. That we would worship you with everything within us. No matter how we feel, we just do it. I ask and pray, O God, that you'd be with Trevor as he speaks at our next service. Dear God, he's a very good teacher and very studious, but I ask and pray that you'll mess him up, that he'll not be studious. He'll be overcome by your spirit. He'll give us truth with great joy and conviction and be with us as hearers to hear what you have for us to hear. Bless this day, oh God. Let it be unusual for you are among us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.